Hey everyone, welcome to Go Bold. Today's episode is focused on the Royal Canadian Air Force's current modernization effort to enhance its fleet of CF-18 Hornet fighter aircraft. The $1.3 billion project to upgrade the CF-18 Hornet fleet is meant to ensure that Canada's fighter fleet remains capable of responding to threats until new jets acquired under the Future Fighter Capability Project, or FFCP, reaches operational capability. You'll hear my guest and I refer to FFCP in our discussion, and that platform will be the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter. The upgrade effort for the CF-18 is known as the Hornet Extension Project, or HEP for short. It is required to keep the CF-18 fleet interoperable and compliant with aviation regulations, and also to meet operational parity with current threats. The Hornet Extension Project will see upgrades to all CF-18s in the fleet, and that includes jets that were acquired from the Royal Australian Air Force under the Interim Fighter Capability Project, or IFCP. The Hornet Extension Project will have two phases. HEP-1 focuses primarily on interoperability and regulatory upgrades for all CF-18s. 36 CF-18s will be selected for HEP-2, which is a further enhancement that will see those jets configured as the most capable fighters in the Royal Canadian Air Force. HEP-2 upgrades include a new radar, advanced weapons capability, enhanced survivability, and mission support and security requirements which are primarily required to support new weapons for the CF-18. This upgrade effort is being conducted in conjunction with the United States Marine Corps, who are also upgrading their own legacy Hornet fleet. Joining me to talk about all of this is Royal Canadian Air Force Brigadier General Todd Balf, who manages the Hornet Extension Project. But before we begin, I want to take a quick moment to thank our sponsor, Cubic Defense. Cubic supports military training by providing warfighters cutting-edge tools that are necessary for operational success. Cubic leads the way with highly precise tracking systems for aircraft and test ranges. This technology has been adopted by militaries around the world and includes capabilities like air combat maneuvering instrumentation, otherwise known as ACMI, which this year celebrates 50 years in support to Allied Air Forces. So important is this technology that it is embedded as an internal subsystem in the Joint Strike Fighter. Cubic has also developed SPEAR, a revolutionary learning platform for multi-domain operations and training. SPEAR is a Department of Defense-approved technology stack that reduces cognitive burden through optimized displays and analytics of kinetic, and non-kinetic data with weapons effects in multi-domain operations and LVC environments. SPEAR melds objective and subjective data with time-synchronized, real-time mission log and after-action reporting. This means the SPEAR software allows warfighters at the unit level or enterprise training and operations level to visualize operations throughout the mission cycle, which enables them to understand multi-domain operations like never before. At all levels of combat preparation and execution, Cubic Defense delivers real results. To learn more about them, please visit cubic.com. Now, let's cue the music so we can join our guest, Brigadier General Todd Balf. (laughs) 
Hey, everybody. Welcome to Go Bold. I'm your host, Jody Atariwala, and I'm really excited for today's conversation. We have on the line with us Brigadier General Todd Belf, who is a Royal Canadian Air Force fighter pilot. Uh, once you're a fighter pilot, you're always a fighter pilot. But today, Brigadier General Belf is in charge of upgrading Canada's CF-18 Hornet fleet. And so this is actually quite an exciting topic. I, I love fighters. So it's a great honor to have Brigadier General Balf here. Um, General, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here, Jody. Uh, thanks very much for inviting me. Thank you. Um, so before we get into the Hornet upgrade and all of the things that's involved with that, please give me a little bit of a sense of who you are and a little bit of your career history so people kind of know who, who we're chatting with. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I've been in uh, uniform for about 39 years now. Uh, joined the Canadian Forces Reserves as an infantry soldier in 1982. Uh, left that, went to the Royal Military College after graduation, pilot training, stayed as a flying instructor in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan for four years, uh, and then transitioned onto the F-18 via the F-5. Flew that airplane for about 20 years, was very lucky to get to be a commanding officer a couple of times. Uh, have done a bunch of staff jobs since then. Uh, and now back with the Air Force doing force development, where we look after uh, the conceive and the design and the build phase of the uh, future force for the RCAF, uh, working uh, for Major General Gogo Menard in an office called the Fighter Capability Office. And as you mentioned in your introduction, my primary responsibility is the legacy fighter, uh, the CF-18, plus also the transition to the future fighter and all of the weapons projects as well, and a few other ones that we could talk about as well, if you like. Yeah, sweet. It seems like you've got a heck of a large portfolio there, which is, which is awesome. Um, the CF-18 came into Royal Canadian Air Force service in the early 80s. And so throughout the history of the CF-18, there have been um, modernization efforts. And so perhaps you could just share with me where the CF-18 fleet currently is today prior to the stuff that your office is working on. Yeah, an excellent question. Um, the CF-18 undergone several upgrades over its service life, which is natural. When it entered service in the early 1980s, it was very much leading the edge technologically. Uh, when it arrived in Europe, uh, aside from the American F-15s, for example, it was the only NATO fighter that had a beyond visual range, uh, look down, shoot down capability, uh, which really was an impressive capability. It also had radar bombing capability and some computer assisted bombing capability that was uh, fairly groundbreaking at the time. But of course, that erodes over time as uh, other technologies catch up, especially from the adversary. So the aircraft's been through a couple of major upgrades. Uh, the last one brought to it uh, things such as Link 16 data links, uh, the APG 73 radar, which was an improvement over the APG 65, still mechanically scanned, but an upgrade. Uh, prior to that, uh, precision guided munitions have been introduced with uh, targeting pods so we could use uh, PGMs, the laser guided bombs, and now GPS guided bombs. Uh, we went from semi-active radar-guided missiles to active missiles, such as the AIM-120 AMRAAM. Um, night vision goggles were a big improvement. Um, have quick anti-jam radios. So the airplane has seen many upgrades over its service life. Um, the last uh, upgrades were done about 10 years ago, and, and that was conscious because at the time, uh, the CF-18 was going to be replaced with a future fighter. Uh, previous government had decided to sole source purchase the F-35, hence putting additional money into upgrading the uh, CF-18 didn't make sense financially. It wasn't a prudent use of, of taxpayer or Department of Defense funding, um, hence it was deferred. 
Uh, with the reset of the fighter competition and the future fighter aircraft arriving later, um, there was a clear recognition back in 2017, uh, amplified by the uh, Office of the Auditor General's report on Canada's fighter uh, force that really brought to fore a couple of problems, uh, principally the qualitative uh, disadvantage the CF-18 was at because it hadn't been upgraded. So therefore, adversary aircraft had advanced and the CF-18 hadn't and hence uh, the beginning of the uh, Hornet extension project to bring additional capability to the CF-18. Right on. And so there's so many uh, lanes to go down here, but there was an interim fighter capability project that Canada had brought in. And that originally was to bring on some FA-18E Super Hornets. And that interim fighter capability project um, Obviously, what happened, uh, you know, Boeing put in a, a complaint against Canada and Bombardier. And uh, so Canada withdrew from that project, if I have my history correct. Um, but the IFCP, the Interim Fighter Capability Project, continued on in a different form. It did. The, uh, the government, uh, our current government, had uh, identified and directed that the commitment to NATO and NORAD that the CF-18 uh, was required to do had to be done concurrently and therefore there'd be no more risk management of that uh, of those two missions. Hence, they had identified what they called a uh, quantitative capability gap, uh, which was the fact that we did not have enough CF-18s to meet all those missions if at the highest levels they were required to be completed concurrently. Uh, thus, the uh, government's plan to buy the uh, Super Hornet was going to address that uh, capability gap, and, but obviously it was going to bring some qualitative advantage as well. A Super Hornet had uh, more capabilities than a non-upgraded CF-18. Um, we clearly recognized after the uh, Super Hornet uh, arrangement uh, wasn't pursued for the reasons you mentioned, that there was still a quantitative capability gap, hence uh, the opportunity to purchase the surplus uh, Australian aircraft. So we bought 18 of those aircraft flyable, two non-flyable to be used as spares and a large sparing pool. Um, that will take us up to 94 CF-18s. Those Australian aircraft are in service right now. They've been uh, modified. Uh, all of them are in Canada, which uh, addresses that uh, quantitative capability uh, gap we talked about. Now that OAG report talked about something that was more pressing for me, and that was the qualitative capability gap. So we could have a lot of aircraft, but they were at an operational disadvantage relative to the adversary. Um, the mechanically scanned radar meant that the adversary aircraft uh, detected our aircraft first. Uh, our weapons had shorter range and less capability than the adversary aircraft. Um, our air-to-surface weapons were less capable. Our survivability was less uh, pronounced. And on top of that, uh, aviation regulatory environments have changed, and there was a need to do some of the changes, such as the GPS in the uh, CF-18, plus interoperability requirements. Uh, as our allies, especially the, our American allies, were changing their interoperability requirements, we needed to do that. So hence, as a result, IFCP has been pursued. It's uh, moving along quite nicely. It's on time. It's on budget. Um, and then the Hornet Extension Project, uh, as well, uh, will achieve its IOC in 2023 and its FOC final operational capability in 2025. And what that means specifically is uh, all 94 aircraft, so the 76 CF-18s plus the 18 ex-Australian aircraft, they'll all go through phase one of the HEP, the Hornet Extension Project, mm -hmm. which will bring the interoperability and the regulatory upgrades to the entire fleet. 
Um, then 36 of those aircraft, the best 36 with the longest life left in them and all single seat aircraft, they will undergo phase two of HEP, which is the combat capability upgrades. So they'll get the APG-79 version four uh, Raytheon produced radar. It's an active electronically scanned array radar. So ASA, as we pronounce it, it's completely electronic. It's the same radar uh, that's in the Super Hornet. It's uh, modified and uh, slightly changed to fit into a legacy Hornet. Um, we'll get new weapons, longer range and more capable AMRAAM, medium range air to air missiles. Uh, we'll finally get the AIM-9X Sidewinder short range missile that has off site capability plus other capabilities. We'll get the JSA, the Joint Standoff Weapon, which is a glide bomb that can uh, glide out to about 100 kilometer range, uh, unclassified range, which gives us for the first time in our Air Force's history uh, for a fighter standoff distance, that we can stay outside of the threat range and engage the target with a weapon system. Um, and we'll have a bunch of other upgrades as well into the cockpit that are uh, of great value to us as an Air Force, such as uh, an auto GCAS, auto ground collision avoidance system, which will save pilots from having a, a unintentional impact with the ground and catastrophic effects that has. Um, and the reason we're going to be able to get all this capability and put it into the Hornet is our U.S. Marine Corps friends are doing something very similar. So as soon as we began looking at the Hornet extension project, um, the first trip we took was to our U.S. allies, went down and visited in the Pentagon, understood exactly what they were doing, and we have partnered with them on this. Um, with the ROI, the return on investment for the HEP being about five to seven years, uh, we need to have all of these aircraft done by 2025 because they're only going to stay flying until 2032. We needed to make sure that we were spending our dollars wisely, but more importantly, we're getting the capability out to the field as fast as we could, but yet safely and coherently done. Um, so hence, partnering with the Marine Corps made perfect sense. We didn't have time to do unique uh, Canadian innovative or unique solutions to do um, uh, implementation decisions. We needed to find uh, capability that had already been integrated on the CF-18. And that was our guiding principle for the entire project. And it makes a lot of sense because let's be honest, you know, the U.S. has deeper pockets. So they have the ability to kind of develop some of these things, put it into their Marine Corps Hornets. And if we can uh, be partners in that process, just makes a lot of sense. It absolutely does. And of course, uh, as we align on uh, NORAD and NATO requirements, so supporting each other makes perfect sense. Um, HEP is a great example of uh, partnership and the importance of interoperability with our U.S. allies. And the fact that uh, much of our software and our support is being written uh, in the U.S. for U.S. Uh, Marine Corps Hornet. So therefore, it's available to us to use as well. Uh, going a different route would have been uh, much more challenging. Um, so the collaborative effort with our uh, ADM material group folks on this, who are the project managers, my team, who are the project directors, has been superb. Um, we are getting HEP accomplished well ahead of normal timeline schedules because of the importance of getting this done. We had to close the quantitative capability gap with IFCP. We now have to close the qualitative capability gap with HEP. So our ADM MAT colleagues have been superb. Uh, the Air Force team has worked very hard to bring this together. Uh, the U.S. Navy, through their Navy International Programs Office, our PSPC uh, colleagues at the Embassy in Washington, plus here in Ottawa, uh, Public Services Procurement Canada have been nothing short of miracle workers to help us make sure that we follow the appropriate guidelines, but get things done quickly. Uh, they've been a huge uh, source of, uh, of help getting this done. But the other point I want to point out is how important Canadian industry is, too. 
they have stepped up to the plate just like everyone else has to make sure that they can prioritize getting these aircraft upgraded and out to the flight line. So it really is a success story in my point of view from uh, a U.S. Canadian and a whole of government Canadian side of the house. Plus also, I really got to mention how uh, how remarkable our Canadian industry have been on this front. Oh, that's awesome. Well, you know, it's, it is remarkable just to hear the timelines that you're speaking about general is, uh, is impressive. <laughs> when you when you think about how, uh, how procurements and some of these things w- typically work. Um, this is remarkable. And it's a kudo to the whole team. Um, so let's unpack some of this. Um, and how about we start with the Australian F-18s that, that we've acquired uh, 18, as you mentioned, that are flyable to non flyable. They are also a Five Eyes partner, so I assumed that it was advantageous in acquiring their particular Hornets, but what is needed to be done to bring them up to a CF-18 standard before any of the HEP modernization efforts? There are about 36 separate upgrades that have to be done to the aircraft. I'll just mention the three big ones sure. um, because every country has its own requirements. Um, for example, their night vision imaging system in their aircraft is not the same as the one that we have in our CF-18. So we had to make some decisions on whether we tried to replace it or just accept the fact that there are differences and, and live with those differences inside our, our safety margins. Um, the second major change was they did not, in one of their upgrade processes, put in the new ejection seat. They have the original Martin Baker ejection seat, whereas we put in the Nasus uh, ejection seat, which is a more capable seat. So we clearly had to replace the seats. And um, the other thing that is different is they didn't operate the same uh, targeting pod that we have. They don't have the sniper targeting pod. So more changes required to uh, to accommodate that. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing is they had a different operating software that had to be taken out of the aircraft and our, our own software put in there. And then one more example is uh, their single seat aircraft have uh, gold infused canopies. And the gold canopy uh, was to reduce the radar cross section and the signature of the aircraft which brings some of its own unique handling challenges. For example, it produces static electricity that uh, needs to be addressed uh, for our folks on the ground uh, with special precautions. Um, So there are some significant changes uh, Mm -hmm. to the aircraft and and therefore some of the maintenance practices are different. And there's some unique Australian parts that we're acquiring to look after the aircraft. So they're not completely the same, but they're very close. Um, Part of the decision process we're going through right now is we've allocated them out to both of the wings and different squadrons. We may ultimately recommend to Air Force leadership that it might be more prudent to pool them at one location and build up the expertise on on how to operate those different variants. Yeah, that perhaps might make sense. Uh, I guess it all depends on how how much the difference maintenance is on, on both. But uh, I can tell you from firsthand account from uh, one of the CF-18 pilots that he flew uh, one of the Australian jets and he said it was like a hot rod. He said, he goes, I don't know what they've done with the engines in terms of like, you know, bringing them up to spec or or just refurbishing them before, you know, going to the squadron. But he goes, it was just an amazing ride, uh, which is cool to hear. Yeah, it's important for us to, to get the 94 aircraft out to the squadrons because, you know, the, the challenge is, and uh, we, we can't oversell HEP. HEP's important. It will close that uh, capability gap, but mm-hmm. it'll only take us to parity. Uh, we're at an operational disadvantage now. It'll take us to operational parity with an ASA radar and improved weapons. But a Hornet is still a 40-year-old airplane that was designed 50 years ago. So there are design limitations that uh, limit the aircraft's capability against more modern threats. But on top of that, it's 40 years old. So components wear out and break, uh, obviously. So hence, the serviceability of the aircraft is not what it once was. So you need a slightly larger fleet 
to be able to generate enough flying hours to keep our air crews proficient and current. And that's one of our big concerns right now is to maximize how much we can fly these aircraft so we can train our air crew to keep them proficient and get them ready for what really is the solution to Canada's fighter needs. And that's the Future Fighter Capability Project. Uh, we recognize that HEP and IFCP are a bridge to the future fighter aircraft. Um, and by 2032, uh, when the CF-18 is fully retired, we will have a future fighter capability project having delivered and achieved its own FOC in 2031. Now, one of the other benefits of the way we're doing the bridge right now is um, the way we're looking at uh, our operations and the weapons we're buying, for example, for the, for the improved Hornet are very much the type of weapons and capabilities we're going to see on the future fighter. So therefore, our crews, maintenance, support crews, plus more importantly, in this case, the pilots, they're trained on weapons like the advanced AMRAMs, like the joint standoff weapon, like operating ASA radars. And much of that mission programming is done at the top secret level, no longer just at the secret level. So we're beginning to prepare ourselves for what the future is going to look like, because the future is going to be vastly different from the way I operated and flew Hornets for, for 20 years. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Uh, you know, when you hear stories of fifth gen operation, um, it's, uh, it is markedly different from the way fourth gen aircraft operated. And uh, Gen you know, 4.5 also has some of those requirements. So sure. what we look at, uh, the, and as we go to the HEP jets, for example, the full HEP-2 jets, those 36 aircraft, mm -hmm. they'll be operating at a top secret level because of the capability we're putting into that aircraft, which is a significant transition for us from a mindset point of view and a support point of view. We have to buy, which is part of uh, HEP as well, uh, SCIFs, secure containerized information, secure compartmentalized information facilities where our pilots can do the mission planning uh, that's necessary um, for those weapons at the top secret level. So um, it's taking us into a whole new way of thinking, which is which is challenging, but it's also positive because that is the future. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and in regard to that, the SCIFs, um, who provides that, General? Well, the actual structures of the SCIFs are built here in Canada. Okay. Um, the Canadian Army uses a number of them right now. So one of our goals was to make things as common as possible. So we'll purchase the same ones. Uh, the internals of it, the guts will be different, of course, but the outsides will be uh, similar. Uh, and then we'll have to do all of the appropriate work with our security folks and also with our U.S. allies to get those SCIFs accredited. Uh, and clearly they have to be secured as well because much of the information is five eyes and two eyes information and we have a responsibility to protect it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so now you've got these 18 additional Hornets coming on. They're all going to be upgraded, as you mentioned, uh, the 90 some odd aircraft all going to be upgraded to a, a HEP-1 configuration. Um, you mentioned that there's got to be some air traffic control, I guess, regulatory upgrades. And uh, you mentioned GPS. Uh, I guess that's part and parcel of ADSB. I think that has to be uh, in these aircraft now. That's correct. So a new ADSB is going into the aircraft, uh, GPS to support that, uh, GPS to support uh, instrument approaches. Um, so the interoperability upgrades are uh, uh, slightly different. We're looking at obviously upgrading the Link 16 to what's called MIDS jitters, the multifunction information display system, the joint tactical uh, radio. Uh, those new systems will go into the aircraft as well so that we can completely uh, talk with our allies, uh, identification friend info, the CIT with the combined interrogator transponder, that's already in the process of being upgraded. Uh, mm -hmm. That was such a high priority. We did that outside of HEP. Uh, we did that rapidly to get that moving forward because um, some of the IFF uh, 
techniques that uh, and mechanisms that were used throughout my career are obsolete now, and they've gone on to a new system. So partnering with the U.S., we were able to roll that capability out very quickly, and it'll be fully uh, on board for all 94 of the CF-18s when we're done phase one. Awesome. And they will all obviously be, uh, so you have this harmonized fleet, which is, which is fantastic. Um, and they will all be capable of employing the existing weaponry that the Canadian Armed Forces uses. It's just that 36 will have the upgraded capability and the upgraded radar. Absolutely. And the plan with those 36 is there'll be 18 of them at uh, Coal Lake and 18 of them at Bagotville uh, to satisfy our NORAD requirements. Uh, and then obviously uh, to do any NATO responses required. So as we begin drawing down Hornet squadrons to start building up future fighter capability squadrons, um, the HEP-2 squadrons, they'll be the last Hornet squadrons to shut down. Right. And of the four active uh, or operational, I should say, uh, CF-18 squadrons, uh, I imagine HEP-2 jets will only go to one squadron per base. They won't be split amongst the squadrons. Okay. That's correct. Right. Wouldn't make sense to do that. Um, cool. I know that there was another effort afoot with the CF-18 to reposition the sniper targeting pod. Now, I don't know if that falls under HEP or IFCP. Uh, neither. It's, it's done separate. We do an awful lot of uh, work as well that's uh, done not as a project because the dollar value is relatively low. So to be able to move it to the center line was a project that was being worked on to give more flexibility as well. Right. And so I don't know if you have more knowledge on that particular effort, but um, for those of our listeners that are interested, maybe you could just kind of share the, the reasoning behind that. The, uh, the pod is often blanked by the fuselage when you're turning and, and maneuvering the aircraft with external fuel tanks in particular. So there was some desire to take that away by putting it on the, uh, the center line. For example, when I was flying the Hornet in uh, Aviano, especially during the Kosovo Air Campaign, um, it was challenging sometimes to, to see your targets. So we often flew in what was called an ugly duck configuration. So you'd have a centerline fuel tank and you'd have one fuel tank on the right wing, but no fuel tank on the left wing uh, so that you would have a better visibility with your uh, sniper pod. It provided some uh, marge minor challenges on asymmetry because one wing was heavier than the other wing. Uh, but as long as you adhered to the, uh, the restrictions, you were just fine. So that movement part is happening outside of HEP, but some of the upgrades to the sniper part are happening inside HEP as we're doing some improvements to sniper capability uh, to try and get some more functionality out of it. Um, it's not uh, extensive, but it's going to bring some more capability out of that pod. And of course, we'll try and get as much as we can, just like the rest of the aircraft while we bridge towards the future fighter. Nice. And I think I've seen U.S. Marine Corps aircraft that they operate their targeting pod on the center line as well. So, yeah, you lose your center line fuel tank. But, yeah, I guess you solve that that issue about visibility. Yeah, correct. Awesome. Hey, everyone. This podcast is brought to you in part by Team Northern Sentry, led by Artfield Canada. Team Northern Sentry brings together Canadian leaders in defense, aerospace, and technology to provide a comprehensive sustainment solution for the CF-18 Avionics in-service support contract. Team members include Artfield Canada, Raytheon Canada, L3 Harris Technologies, Palatronica, and Terra Nova. The combined strength and expertise of Team Northern Sentry will ensure continued support 
and operational readiness for Canada's CF-18 fighter fleet until its retirement. For more information about Team Northern Sentry, please visit teamnorthernsentry.ca. Now, let's get back to our chat on the HEP modernization of the CF-18 Hornet. So, when we talk about now weapons, um, currently the Hornet fleet operates in AMRAM. I think it's a Charlie variant. And, it um, is. Yeah, and then the, the AIM-9. And we have GPS and guided bombs. Um, so, is AESA a requirement for some of these weapons? Um, I'm just wondering why we're not putting all of the weapon functionality across all of the jets as opposed to just the 36. Part of the reason we're not right now is the numbers of weapons we're buying are small. When we scoped HEP back in 2017 and finalized it through the programmatics, um, there were five competitors still, then down to four, then down to three in FFCP. Buying a large stockpile of weapons more than we needed to satisfy the immediate requirements uh, ran the risk of some of those weapons not fitting onto the future fighter aircraft and therefore some of that money potentially being wasted. So we looked at the bare minimum buy for weapons of uh, AIM-120 Deltas, AMRAMs and AIM-9Xs and got to the numbers we got to. Uh, we're now looking to see if, for example, the AIM-9X with the software load can be supported into the other aircraft as well. Uh, nice. The AIM-120D can't be properly supported without the ASA radar. Um, so hence, uh, that won't be likely to happen, but we very much would like to be able to see if we could put the AIM-9X on the other aircraft. Um, the logic behind how we built HEP to recognize that we needed to get it done quickly, we need to get as much capability as we could was we prefaced the, uh, we provided priority to the NORAD mission, no surprise. So air to air for NORAD was the number one requirement to bring more capability. And that means in terms of deterrence and uh, ultimately um, air defense if required. So the 120D gave us more capability, the AIM-9X gave us more capability. We're talking more than just air breathing. We're also talking uh, cruise missiles and all those other kind of capabilities. The ASA radar brings more capability for that. The second mission we looked at was the NATO air policing mission to bring more capability air to air, whether that be on the Southern front or in the Northern front doing the Baltic air policing or the Romanian air policing to give our aircraft and our air crew more capability. And then the third priority was the air to surface side of the house for coalition warfare, uh, whether that be something similar to Iraq, Syria, Kosovo, Libya, whatever the government uh, mandated and, and needed to be done with allies to bring capability there. And that's where the joint standoff weapon, the JSAL came into play. Okay, interesting. Interesting. And in the context of the radar, um, I recall that there's an interesting, um, there's an interesting aspect to the radar vis-a-vis -vis Canada's participation. And that was, I believe you were looking at a redesign of some sort of the nose. And I think there was a discussion between Canada and the Marine Corps, whether the Marine Corps would do that or not, but I think Canada was proceeding, if I have my memory right. You are correct. We're going to replace the radome on the 36 HEP-2 jets. Um, the original radome does not give full functionality of the ASA radar. So the Marine Corps didn't have the funding or the scope to do that at the time. Uh, we are paying for it, and based upon conversations 
government to government, ultimately that information and that non-recurrent engineering um, may either be sold or passed to our American allies so they can do something similar. But our Hornets will be unique in the fact that their uh, radomes will be, they'll look similar, but they'll be remanufactured. And again, industry, uh, Boeing and uh, Northrop in particular have been working hard on helping us with that uh, radome redesign. I think that's awesome. So you mentioned Boeing and Northrop, but was the effort to undergo this process of redesigning the radome, was that because you're already getting improved in performance with the ESA radar, but as you said, it probably wouldn't have been as much as you could have without redesigning the radome. So um, that non-recurring cost, um, the Royal Canadian Air Force's view that it's worthwhile to do this. We uh, decided it was worthwhile. It wasn't a lot of money in the $1.4 billion. It was in the, the very small millions of dollars to, to get done. Uh, it was important for us to have that kind of capability to, to really bring to fore the, the, the radar. The, the radar in the CF-18 is the primary sensor. It is the heart of the aircraft. So we wanted to get as absolutely much capability out of the radar as we could, everything that it can give us. Um, and as, as I say, it's prioritized for the air-to-air -air mission, uh, but to be able to detect things such as cruise missiles or other small objects, uh, whether that be um, low uh, observable type of objects, uh, fighter aircraft, bomber sized aircraft, obviously, we want the maximum uh, detection capability we could get out of it. Yep, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so one of the aspects, if we were to talk about the radar as the brains of the aircraft, uh, the engines could, using an analogy, could be the heart. Um, is there any effort to do anything with the motors for the CF-18s? Well, the, the old GE 404 engine is an incredibly reliable engine, and um, we are uh, continuing to plan to use them. No upgrade plans beyond just sustaining them through to the end of the aircraft service life. Um, no, uh, There's no efforts with allied partners that I'm aware of to do any re-engineering or other effort on that side of the house. Um, that would be a major undertaking to, to try and change the, the airframe. Um, getting the engines uh, overhauled and into the uh, aircraft is a high priority for us, obviously, to keep flying. Um, having a two-engine aircraft has been beneficial. Um, in my 2,500 hours of flying the Hornet, I never lost a single engine. So um, when we talk about losing engines, uh, and even though the 404 is a 40-year-old airplane, engine technology is so robust now um, that I spent nearly 5,000 hours in jet uh, aircraft and never lost a single engine that failed on me. Uh, and I've been in an awful lot of passenger airplanes as well that have never lost an engine. So right. Um, right. It, it, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a red herring having that conversation about engine reliability these days. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I think that conversation is kind of old news now. Um, what are your thoughts then about, or what can you share? Because I know this gets into very sensitive areas very quickly. What can you share about electronic warfare? Um, because, that is one thing that obviously people don't talk about too much, uh, but it is a very important part of fighter aircraft. Absolutely. And it, it's the part of the uh, HEP project that we were not able to make much headway on. Um, we would like to have pursued avenues to put uh, uh, EA electronic attack capability in the aircraft more than it had previously. Um, the timeline didn't permit it. The budget didn't permit it. And quite simply, the aircraft's uh, size, shape, and structure was going to be problematic. Um, for example, while the Marine Corps are doing their upgrades on their aircraft, um, they're F-18 Charlie, so they're slightly different size and scope. Um, there was no simple path forward for us to do a major upgrade on the, uh, on the EA side of the house. 
having said that, the ASA radar has some capabilities to, to support that. Uh, and then if you look back on the hierarchy of how we built the platform from NORAD first to NATO air policing second to coalition warfare third, uh, and then look to get weapons that gave us great standoff distance, air to air and air to ground, um, that we saw was sufficient to mitigate the threat of not having a more robust EA capability. Recognizing that this is an interim bridge to the future fighter, which is the solution, and the uh, anticipation is the future fighter will have a very robust EW or EA capability. Right, right, yeah. And I think that that capability is growing more and more important with each day. Yeah, so it'll be nice to see that in, in a more modern airframe. Um, in this discussion, we've kind of gone back and forth about working with the Marine Corps and then some of the differences. Are there any other differences between the upgraded Marine Corps aircraft that you know and the HEP aircraft that the Royal Canadian Air Force will operate? Hmm. We'll have the same radar. We'll have the same air-to-air -air weapons, similar air-to-ground weapons. Um, they will not have the radome, the new radome that we will have. Um, they will have a jamming pod, the ALQ-214, that we will not have. Um, they have different chaff flare dispensers from us, so they will have uh, active RF expendables. Uh, but other than that, they'll be very similar aircraft in terms of uh, their capability. Okay. And I know that they have Jehemex in their aircraft like we do. Um, I, I don't think there's any other change there. Um, both aircraft operate the same types, I believe. Correct. Okay. Awesome. Uh, so let's talk about developing all this. How far are we in the nose radome process? The uh, the RFP has been done through the U.S. Navy who issues it out to industry. So it's been received by them. Uh, funding has been approved. Uh, we've been through Treasury Board. So all of the funding is approved. Uh, HEP is 100% into implementation right now. So mm -hmm. we're moving ahead quite quickly. Uh, the anticipation is that we'll have those radomes by FOC of 2025. So the 36 HEP aircraft will, will have all of that capability fully in place by then. Cool. Uh, and so now when it comes to uh, the timeline for IFCP and HEP1, HEP2. Um, it's already happening now because it's happening in multiple phases. Some okay. of it, for example, the CITs, the combined interrogator transponder, even though it's not formally part of HEP, it was necessary. We just funded it outside of a different source of funding. Um, that's already being done. So some of the modifications are done relatively simply and at the unit. Uh, others are done uh, at the depot level. Um, so that is going to carry on for a number of years. And hence, another reason why increasing the fleet size to 94 was beneficial. While we have aircraft out going through the induction line being upgraded, uh, we haven't denuded the squadrons completely. We, we need to be able to keep the capability on the flight line so we can keep training our, uh, our air crew and also keep meeting our mission requirements. So uh, we're going to see a multi-year phase. And, and, and that is obviously challenging. Yeah, we're going through a long transition. The Hornet had done two previous upgrades uh, in its service life, and, and that was an impact to the operators because aircraft were out of service, new manuals were, were required to be made, uh, new ways of doing business. So we're going to be going through basically a period of transition now in the fighter force between now and 2030, mm -hmm. even 2031 when we get to FOC of the uh, future fighter. There, there'll be a transition through accepting the IFCP jets, the transition through um, HEP-1, learning the new capability in HEP-1, learning the new capability in HEP-2, and then stepping into the future fighter aircraft. So that is uh, an awful lot of transitions. It, it's unfortunate, but the government, based upon the recommendation of uh, uh, CAF leadership, realized that the capability gap was too big to accept. 
that qualitative capability gap needed to be filled. It needed to be fixed uh, prior to FFCP arriving. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense that you would take this approach, but that obviously puts some pressure on training. And in the squadrons, you will have two different variants of upgraded jet, the HEP ones and the HEP twos. So um, will there be a cadre of pilots that are just HEP two pilots, or will all of the pilots have the ability to jump into a HEP two jet? So our plan uh, right now is that we will upgrade an entire squadron. So as the HEP-1 jets are rolled out, they'll be rolled out to the squadron and the squadrons will be equipped with those aircraft as those capabilities come out. Mm-hmm. Um, the HEP-1 transition won't be as significant as the HEP-2 because the systems are uh, are, are somewhat simpler. So um, as that rolls out, it'll roll out to all four of the squadrons Then eventually the five squadrons, if you count the operational training unit. The HEP-2 squadrons will be unique. So only the HEP-2 pilots will have that capability. And because of the advanced programs uh, and the advanced capability that are in some of those uh, HEP-2 jets, only HEP-2 pilots will be read into and uh, cleared to operate those systems. Um, It won't be a dissatisfier, I don't think, for the pilots on the HEP-1 squadrons, because they're going to be standing down, getting ready to transition to the future fighter. Uh, interesting. So in theory, the HEP-1 guys will be the first guys to transfer over to a FFCP jet. Not in theory, in, in reality. Yeah, will. In reality, right, right. Oh, wow. Okay. It's such an interesting project because it, you know we've talked about them coming into operation in the 1980s, but arguably the, the aircraft that you are producing are going to be on the cutting edge. But as you mentioned, it'll, it'll get us to parity. It will. And, you know, and one of the big differences is um, modern fighter aircraft, Gen 4.5, certainly, and, and Gen 5 aircraft, absolutely, have something that you could never put into a Hornet, and that's the ability to do sensor fusion. Um, that The flying computer that are, that are the advanced aircraft, they do all of the data fusion and provide solutions to the pilot. As you add on additional capability to a CF-18, it isn't fused into anything, so they're all separate and distinct. Um, so that's one limitation of putting that capability on the aircraft. So therefore, the decision time and the decision quality information the pilot has isn't at the same level of quality as a Gen 4.5 or a Gen 5 aircraft. The second challenge is, besides the airframe being older, is the design of the airframe means it's a relatively slow airplane. The F-18 was never very fast. Uh, and it is a very visible airplane um, to ground and air-to-air radars. It has a very large radar cross-section, so it's easily seen and easily detected. Um, And on top of that, the emissions of the aircraft are not what modern aircraft have because you've got all these different systems on it, and they emit electrons, and those electrons can be detected. So um, it's like taking an old car, for example, and, and putting in a turbocharger or putting in more horsepower, but you've done nothing to the suspension system to actually allow the car to to accommodate that power or to actually cause it to turn properly or to have traction control so it doesn't spin its wheels. So I'm not saying the the CF-18 is now a hot rod that can't turn. Uh, I'm trying to find a, a crude analogy to say, yes, it'll bring us to operational parity. Yes, it's vastly improved capability. But what our adversaries are transitioning to and what our allies are transitioning to at Gen 4.5 and Gen 5 is a revolutionary leap in technological capability. And a CF-18 can't get there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can only do what you can do, right? Like, I mean, uh, you've got what you, you have that form factor that you have to work with and that can't change. Um, So for the spotters out there that might be listening, 
would there be anything visible on the outside of a CF-18 that would be that would be distinguishable from a legacy? Uh, well, I don't even want to say legacy because that's probably the wrong word, but a current uh, CF-18 and a modernized uh, HEP-1 or 2 CF-18? That's an excellent question. Um, if it's carrying weapons, some of the weapons would give it away. Certainly, you'd recognize things like a JSAW or, right. or other type of weapons. Um, you would not be able to tell the radar because it's behind the radome, clearly. Um, mm -hmm. You wouldn't be able to tell any of the avionics because it's all internal to the aircraft. Mm -hmm. um, so there are very few things that will give it away, uh, which is perhaps not a bad thing. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Uh, true. Um, yeah, I was wondering if there were any aerials or, or um, you mentioned that the radome, the new radome is not really perceptibly different. You won't notice it. Well, you know, if you saw it in its maintenance position, it, it, it is different because the current radome, it hinges sideways. Right, right. The replacement radome can't do that. So it's right. going to have a different way of, but yeah, unless you saw it in its maintenance bay, you wouldn't know that. You would note it. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, Brigadier General Belf, this has been an awesome conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, I've learned a lot. Um, and I think it's exciting times. Uh, I'm sure the guys in the fleet are looking forward to receiving these jets. I'm confident they are. Uh, COVID has obviously been challenging for everyone. Um, we've managed to progress these projects, uh, notwithstanding COVID challenges to keep them on timeline, which requires a lot of people to work very hard. Um, the challenge will be um, always the HR side of the house, whether that be industry, whether that be our U.S. partners, whether that be our whole of government partners here in Canada, uh, to be able to continue to work hard on this from uh, an HR point of view, to keep pushing the product out to the flight line, uh, to build the fighter force up to get ready for that transition. You know, we recognize the world is not getting any safer or any more stable. So uh, getting capability to the men and women of the Canadian Armed Forces is uh, job one for us in, in positions like I have here at Air Force headquarters. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And uh, speaking to uh, to that, where will the first jets go? Um, we know that we've got IFCP jets now at both wings. Um, we're going to make recommendations on where we think those first aircraft should go because we have to time it appropriately so that while one squadron, one wing is transitioning, um, perhaps the other one can be doing something else. Yeah, well, it'll be exciting to see how that pans out. And uh, I look forward to seeing the jets on the ramp. So do I. Thanks very much, Jody. Thank you very much, General. That was Brigadier General Todd Balf of the Royal Canadian Air Force. Thank you, everybody, for listening. If you have any questions for us, please reach out to us at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. And we hope you have a wonderful day. The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is Parasail by Silent Partner. <laughs>